This is Sam. This is Dan. And this is Southpaw. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Become a Southpaw member at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Today on Southpaw, we have journalist, activist, author, and parent, Dan Errol. Dan has written for The Hill, Truthout, Time, Salon, HuffPo, Counterpunch, among many others. He's also the author of The Secular Activist and Parenting Without God, which he just updated for a new edition. And he's working on a new upcoming book called Unholy Alliance, and it's about the connection between new atheism and the far right. Hi, Dan. Hi. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm sure there's a million things we could talk about, but let's start with Parenting Without God, which I just finished. And as a parent, I can't recommend enough. So what made you write the book? So honestly, the book originally came about because of my grandparents, who are very fundamentalist in their religious beliefs. And when they heard we were having our first kid, uh, I remember my grandmother having a thousand questions. You know, are you going to baptize? Are you going to do this? And when every time I would answer and say, no, I don't believe in that stuff, her response was, well, what if you're wrong? And so I would say, like, should I have my kid or like baptized and anointed like every religion <laughs> there is just in case? Like, uh, but as as the questions kept coming, I started kind of writing blog posts about them. And uh, I mean, this was this was quite a while ago, and I was writing for a small blog called Emily Has Books, and they did surprisingly well. Like I had at that point, I hadn't really had any sort of real readership to speak of. Like you know, a couple thousand here and there on a blog post, and I'd get really excited. But these ones were like just being really popular, and. Uh, over time, I, I just kept writing and writing. Uh, I caught the attention of a small publisher who offered uh, me a chance to do a book. And I think now I'm at like eight years, or let's see, like probably five, six, maybe six years later, I'm, you know, I just decided that it was time for a good update and uh, got on a new publisher. And here we are. But yeah, the book was really just inspired by how am I going to deal with these things? How am I, like, because, you know, they're not all bad questions. Like, And it, it started dawning on me that there were going to be questions I was going to hear a lot because we live in a fairly Christian country. So, you know, raising your kid without any of that is different than the norm. That's one thing I appreciated about your book is that it didn't treat all religions as equal because really, if we need something practical and we're living in the U.S., most likely 
the questions that'll come up will be about Christianity. Yeah. And that's, you know, I, I remember early feedback when I first wrote it was, you know, oh, well, you, you know, you talk about Christianity so much. What about Islam? Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, look, there's a time and place to discuss that. But that time and place isn't in this country where I'm not being asked about that. People aren't, he's not going to school with a bunch of kids talking about going to a mosque and they're, they're asking him what, if he's going to church or like they're asking my kids these kind of questions and our, our leaders in this country, the, the politicians, they're, they're Christian and that's the, the, they're using the Christian Bible as their basis for laws. And so that's what we're, that's what we're facing. And so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about Islam, I think, when we talk about my upcoming book. But uh, that's, you know, the, the book, I, I really want to keep it rooted in what we were dealing with and not like straw manning these weird arguments that we could be dealing with. So basically, if you were writing this book while you were living in, let's say, Bhutan, it would be a, probably a different book. Exactly. And I even, uh, you know, preface that in the in the intro is that, you know, Maybe the advice in this book is more universal, but when I'm dealing with specifics, I'm going to deal with what I know best and what I'm dealing with, not like hypotheticals, because hypotheticals don't get you very far. And it kind of reminds me of self-defense, where a lot of times a man will teach women self-defense, and they're talking about scenarios that are not practical for women. Right. Yeah. They don't need to know how to fight off 15 ninjas. They need to know how to <laughs> fight off one assailant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I recently did an episode with ethicist Aaron Rabinowitz, which is all about secular morals. Religious morals would fall under what he would call divine command theory. So for you, once you left Christianity, how did you come to form the basis of your morals? Uh, you know, I think, honestly, for me, leaving religion probably gave me more moral, um, <laughs> a, a better moral compass than, than when I had it. Uh -huh. uh, and, and that in part, probably because I was thinking more about it at the time where I was kind of, you know, putting those things together instead of, uh, you know, when you're, when you're young and religious, you just kind of do what you're told. And it's when you start questioning, are these things I'm told actually moral? Uh, and, you know, things like uh, equal rights and uh, women's rights and all, you start tacking this on and look at how, you know, different religions deal with it i was in one that was not super close-minded but not very open-minded and so you know you start questioning those and honestly it was it was politics and political theory that really drove a moral compass for me because the more i learned about uh and not necessarily just like you know karl marx socialism or in communism style but just that you know you know that sort of left-leaning uh, autonomy and mutual aid sort of thought process kind of made me care about people more because it became, well, I have all these great things because my parents have worked for it, but I also saw other kids in, in school or even as I you know left school that worked just as hard or harder and had less. And it's like, why do they have less? Why, why, why is society built in that way? And that's where my real moral compass, I think, came in was more when I started getting into looking at, you know, the way society is structured and, uh, you know, how capitalism and other uh, 
forces kind of play a hand in that. And that's and, and that's why some people get confused in parenting without God when I talk about things like uh, race and all these other like political ideas. And they're like, that's not really parenting. Are you just up on a soapbox now because you have our attention? But to me, that's a big part of my parenting is instilling how how society is going to work. And a lot of that, like I said, stemmed from my losing religion. And so that's why I felt that it was important to put in a book like this, because, you know, I think that the easy answer is that my moral compass comes from humanism, but uh, I don't know if that's the right word to really use sometimes because that can just be as vague as anything else. But really like my, my moral compass comes from the idea that everyone should do what they can to, to help each other because I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Uh, you're in need, I help you, then you see I'm in need, you can help me. Uh, and we all sort of just spread that around and, and build these communities. And then we have what I would consider to be like a moral and just society where hierarchy is gone and we're all just trying to make sure that each of us can live the best life possible. I think a lot of times, right, when somebody leaves religion, they don't realize that now there's a vacuum, there's a hole, and they don't think about filling in that hole. So a lot of times, maybe they left the church and they call themselves an atheist, but they rely a lot on the moral, let's say, baggage. You'll hear people who are atheists will say like, yeah, I left the church, but Judeo-Christian values, that's still good, right? And they want to maintain that, or they don't even realize sometimes they're maintaining these types of uh, cultural baggage that is still remaining from their time in religion because it's all consuming. It's always around you. And so when you left, then you realize, okay, I'm leaving a lot of things. So I got to fill up that hole. Exactly. It was, it was sort of that piecing things together because I knew, at least for me, when I left, I knew I didn't want anything to do with that, uh, belief system anymore so i think sometimes people lose faith and they don't want to like they're trying to hold on but something happened that really drove them away and so they find little pieces to kind of hang on and i think that drives that a lot uh in my case i didn't have that i kind of wanted to do away with it like i i had it left a bad taste in my mouth so for me it was an easy step to fill a hole because i was i created that hole uh i think there are a lot of times where people uh leave and you know I, I hear stories sometimes where you know a catastrophic event happened and that that's when their their faith was shaken so bad and they lost it but that the hole that it left wasn't something they were prepared for and that's where the i think that's where it comes in where they, they still try to hold on a little bit they think well you know what maybe my church isn't good but what they taught you know, there's some good stuff in there, or, you know, I can at least say that Jesus was a good person. Um, and, and they try to piece those things together. Um, and I don't think it ever really works out very well for them. Uh, I just think it's just a longer road out, uh, where like, I think I was lucky that I had a short road out, but I think a lot of people are stuck on a longer, a longer journey that takes them more time. Uh, I think my own brother kind of lost his faith in that, in that way. And it took him a long time to even admit that he was an atheist uh, just because he kind of knew he didn't believe in what everyone else did anymore, but he couldn't quite get himself to that spot where he could say, Oh, that's because it's all fake. He was sort of stuck in that. Oh, it's just this version of it's wrong. What's the right one. Uh, 
And so he kind of kept searching for a while. And eventually he got there, but it was just a longer road. And I think it puts yourself through a little bit more stress because you're in that limbo of, oh my God, what's good and what's bad? What's right, what's wrong? Uh, And you stress about it a bit because you don't want to make the wrong choice, especially for those who deeply believed in something like hell. You're stuck in that like, oh God, I don't want to go to hell. And I'm not quite sure if I do or don't believe in it, but you still have that residual fear. And it doesn't, it doesn't just go away overnight. Yeah. It's kind of like one foot in and one foot out where, okay, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in organized religion. I'm not part of a church, but surely you're not saying that the Bible is not a historical document, right? It, you know, like God might not be real and all the mystical stuff, but that book is a piece of history. Like it's actual history. And that's the way it went down. You know, I, I find a lot of people who still hold on to that, that is still true in that way. The other parts, like you said, some parts of it is not real, but the historical aspect is real. Or sometimes they leave and they hold on to the idea of an eternal soul where it's like, yeah, that's not real, but souls and ghosts that that's real. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's that disconnect. They have a hard time breaking those apart. And I, I think sometimes, too, it's, it is hard to accept that maybe this is all you get. If you spend your most of your life thinking, oh, like uh, there's a great reward for me after this, especially if you've suffered, especially if life hasn't been super easy for you, you're, you then have that thought of, oh, like, you know, at least it's going to get better. And then it doesn't. And then you realize it's not going to. Or this is all you got left. And then so you're stuck in that um, mindset of, oh, like, I'm going to suffer through all of this. And that's all I get. And it can be hard to let go. I understand that. Sometimes they turn to sci-fi at that point. I hear a lot of people say, well, we're going to figure out how to live forever. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) All within my lifetime. (laughs) Yeah. And then, at, and you can see it's sort of a process because you can, you can feel them let go of like the heaven aspect, but then that's when they start grasping on to like, yeah, but the, you know, the spiritual world or then like they, they haven't even quite let go of ghosts yet or something like that. And they have this thing where they kind of keep holding on to something. And then eventually they get to that part where they're like, okay, well, if this is all I get, I might as well make the best of it. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about hell. Because uh, one of the things about your book that I thought would be useful for all parents, secular or not, is how to deal with hell. Now, for many adults, hell is so normalized. I don't think they recognize how traumatizing it can be when you first learn of the concept. I remember when I came to the U.S. and I learned about it, it scared the fuck out of me. So, <laughs> so can you speak about hell and why it's a subject parents should put a lot of thought into, whether they're secular or not? Yeah, so it it really struck me because, like I said, I had a I had an easy path. So to me, I wasn't stuck in some mindset where, like when I lost when I lost my faith, the idea of hell went right with it, and it was to me it was like a weight off my shoulders. See ya. Um, <laughs> but I I want to say it was an old Richard Dawkins documentary. I can't remember if it was his or not, where they were talking to a woman who was going to therapy. Because she had lost her faith, but the thought of hell was so scary to her that she couldn't get over it, even though she didn't believe it anymore. And so I started looking into that and found out that that's very common, that people that lose their faith 
cannot shake the trauma of being told they're going to suffer and die forever in hell. Uh, even, I mean, I, that's what the hard part to grasp is even after they don't believe in it. <laughs> because it's, it's almost like a, I, I don't want to compare it, but it's almost like a PTSD where you've been so traumatized and told so many times, if you make one mistake, you suffer. And that's just a rough way to look at life. And so to me, it really came, it became important that like I talk about my kids about to my kids about that. Because also, is that a just is that a just concept? Like, yeah, there's been horrible people on this earth. But just because you don't believe in, in one certain person's belief system or you don't worship some god you can't see you're supposed to suffer i don't understand like how could that is even considered a, a just or moral standpoint or I, what made me laugh even harder is when you start to piece it together and you realize that if it's satan is the one torturing the bad guys isn't he the good guy <laughs> what i find is funny is that a lot of the people who talk about how scary hell is and how bad Satan is. They're also the same people who talk about blue lives matter and cops are the ultimate good guys because they're dealing with the bad guys. Right. But Satan is the ultimate cop, right? So how come Satan is bad (laughs) and cops are good? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. The whole, I mean, and that, I mean, that goes into a whole other thing about just how ridiculous the whole story and concept of all of this is, is that like, Satan was created because he was an angel that wouldn't like do God's bidding. Like he was the one guy that was like, "Whoa, wait a second here, guy." Like I don't know if this is a good idea. And he's like, "Okay, now you get to go be Satan." He, like kind of promoted him. <laughs> <laughs> That's lost on everybody. They just see it as this like, "Oh, he was sent to hell." Really, like if you're, I mean, I'm I'm not okay with the idea of hell to begin with because to me it just sounds like the idea of prison, which I'm not okay to be with the idea of. But um, it just becomes the whole story doesn't make sense. <laughs> but yeah, so you know, really getting back to hell, it, it to me, it's that why would you want to scare people into being good? That doesn't make good people. You're not a good person if you're only good because you're scared. Morality isn't based on doing good because you feel like you have to. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Have you ever watched the show um, The Good Place? Yeah, I've seen a few episodes. Okay, so I won't spoil it for anybody, but really, like this topic right here is literally a, a ABC sitcom uh, called The Good Place, and it's about heaven and hell, and it is fantastically done. And it's 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 wrapping up now, like it's almost over, and so I don't want to give anything away because I really want people to watch it. But the way it tackles this topic and 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 what is good and um, how people improve their lives, it's dead on. It's got to be one of the best shows that tackle this. And, and, and in doing so, do it without like the Dawkins or Harris atheism style. It does it in such a, 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 a kind way. And I think people that will watch it will really think about it. And it's not that they're going to think about it and go, oh, wow, I don't believe this anymore. But it's going to really change what people, how people perceive what is good because it challenges that notion of being good for God or just being good for humanity. 
it seems like it's a show that um, people who were talking about ethics and they didn't have a tool or a pop culture reference to reference to now this exists and they can reference this. And then maybe for a lot of people, it becomes a light bulb moment. They're like, oh yeah. Okay. So this is what you're talking about. Yeah, very much so. It's, it, it, it's done in such an accessible way. I, it's funny. It's funny to be recommending a sitcom to talk about ethics, but honestly, it's, it's really good. And they talk about like anyone who's taken philosophy courses, suddenly you're going to start recognizing names that they bring up. Like, you're like, is this a sitcom really talking about con right now? <laughs> like, wait, what's happening? Like, what am I watching that we're talking about a manual con? <laughs> it kind of reminds me a bit of the Star Trek effect where Star Trek also became this device that people were like trying to explain some kind of scientific idea or um, one of those thought experiments. And they have to use Star Trek as the reference. Now, for ethical thought experiments, they bring up the good place. Exactly. No, I think it really does. Uh, that's a really good comparison. <laughs> <laughs> do you find that people who come from, because there's all kinds of different churches. So do you find that people who come from more of a fear-based, like a, a church that's really about hell and, and scaring people and fire and brimstone, those people have a harder time than leaving the church? Yeah, I, I think so. I think. Um, because and when they do leave, their behavior is almost predictable because it comes with an anger. Um, because it's it's one thing to be raised like, uh, well, let's think of it this way: like you don't see that many like new atheist style firebrand uh, ex Jews. Like that's like generally Jewish people very have a very barely believing in god attitude anyways uh so if they completely lose that belief it doesn't really change much about their behavior uh and if you know you see people in like lighter forms of christianity when they leave their faith it's kind of the same like they they don't tend to have like a resentment towards religion but if you're brought up in a way that you're told you're gonna suffer you're gonna die you have to do all of these things all the time to stay in god's good grace or you're gonna suffer and you have to devote so much of your life to it and then you realize that it's not true i think a lot of times they feel lied to they don't quite look at it in the sense that well you know oh well my parents were believe this as well they they look at this like i've been doing all of this for nothing and it's and there's an anger that comes with that, and I think it's justifiable. But it's a uh, it's one of those steps. Like some, I I I used to joke that I was gonna I never put it in a book, but I used to say I was gonna do like a ten steps of atheism, because like you come out and you're like, where's the where's Sam Harris? I need a Sam Harris book now. And then like then you have to how then you try to reference the God delusion as much as you humanly can, uh, and then you know suddenly you discover Christopher Hitchens, and then as you get to the end of that. You're like, wait, they're just jerks all the time. And then you like, and then you discover, you know, like Orion Bell and the American Humanist Association and all these other thinkers who are dissecting religion and think about it differently. And then you kind of come to this more calm place. And I see it happen. It happened to me. And I didn't even have the, the hard part of the religion. But it was just like, uh, I got angry with what religion was doing to the world. And I had my own sort of anger came in. And, but then like, I've got all these friends who like went through the same path and I'm looking at it. I'm like, it's almost predictable. 
And so then I started having a thought process and I, I really haven't done much with it, but you know, what kind of outreach could we be doing to these people coming out uh, to, to help them? And there are groups that came together so doing things like that. Uh, and so they, they kind of have this like lifeline to people that are just coming out and they're like, okay, we're going to try to help uh, and give them a place to go. Um, like things like uh, the Sunday assembly to me, like having an atheist church sounds like the dumbest thing on the planet. But, and when I've, I've gone to a few, I've spoken at some, but they're not for me. But I can sit there and watch and I see people loving it. Because the people that we talked about earlier that didn't want to lose their faith, they liked church. They liked going. And suddenly that's gone. And Sunday assembly fills a void and it gives them church but without the God stuff. So they have that community. They have the songs. They have that, like, the energy in the room really felt the same. Uh, There's still a lot of that, like, energy that you feel in church and the people getting up and being excited. Uh, But it was about something different this time. But I I see the appeal for some people. And I think those are the kinds of things that that help when people come out. It kind of guides them in a better, like, Here's what you can do with that anger. Here's what you can do with those emotions. Um, and I think for a long time that didn't exist. So that's when you wound up with a bunch of assholes. <laughs> <laughs> you just mentioned it, but I think it's actually quite important. The music aspect where I found a lot of people after they leave, they would still end up joining a choir or they go to some kind of secular Sunday thing. I don't know if it's uh, the one you mentioned, but here in Los Angeles, there's something where people get together on Sundays and the main reason people go is they just like singing together or just singing, you know, and it's done very much like a sing-along karaoke style. And I think for a lot of people that that musical aspect, I think that a lot of people just miss not just community, but the arts. And for a lot of people, church was the arts. It was where they could sing and it's like one of the few places where you're allowed to sing and nobody's going to make fun of you. Yeah. And uh, I think people miss that also. Yeah. It's the one place that no one, no one's allowed to make fun of you for singing. Like, what the hell? <laughs> and to your earlier point about um, um, like when you have uh, somebody who comes from uh, Judaism and leaves the faith, it's not as big of a deal. I find that to a similar degree with people who come from more of a, let's say, Christian, but it's more of an orthodoxy. So like Catholics or different types of orthodox uh, Christians, where it's like more about the rituals rather than, you know, like a spiritual competition of who can believe harder. They're just kind of going in for the rituals. I guess the truth is kind of in the rituals. And then you're like, okay, for me, this was always about the rituals, uh, you know, going through the practice, the forms, then it becomes a lot easier uh, to leave because, you know, I've met a ton of former Catholics, you know, there's, there's all types of different slang acronyms for them, but they're a smaller part of the population as far as Christians in America, but they have a disproportionate amount. I feel like of who've been able to leave the church versus Protestants or mainline Protestants. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think the the rituals too, as as, I think that's one place where Judaism is very unique is that you still find so many, uh, non-believing Jews that still take part in almost every ritual and uh, they still fast and they um, 
you know, and they, they recognize like all the holidays and they really take a part because to them, it's also a, a big part of their culture. And, uh, it's also a remembrance of what they've been through. And, uh, so I, I feel like there's some great validity to it. I think it does help keep them like linked as, as a people who have, you know, I mean, how many times have they had attempts to wipe them off this planet? Like, I think that there is like a binding force there, but they don't have to make religion per se, or at least God, a major focus in that, where they just kind of look at it as, um, this is what my ancestors did and we're going to do it because they suffered to do it. I find the same in martial arts where a lot of people join martial arts because they like the rituals of martial arts. Yeah. People like structure. I mean, having grown up in martial arts, if I go to a Catholic church, let's say, or some kind of Greek Orthodox and all the different rituals they do, I, just some part of me really likes it. Now, they probably don't like the fact that I don't believe in any of it, but just kneeling, standing up, making different hand gestures is very similar to growing up in karate and doing what we call forms. It, it, it has a very similar vibe to it that I like. Yeah, I can see that. So going back to hell. <laughs> <laughs> As a parent, how should we tackle that subject? Because if it's not spoken about at home because you're raising your kids secular, they'll still hear about it just from living in the world. So how do we prepare them for this? And so I think one thing, you know, so there's one, one kind of overall theme in my book is like, we don't want to tell our kids what to think. We don't want to explicitly say like, this isn't true. Like we want them to learn how to figure these things out. When it comes to hell, just tell them it isn't true. <laughs> don't waste any time. They don't need. They don't need to. They don't need to stress out figuring this one out. Hell doesn't exist. Don't make them think it does or it could. Just get rid of it, uh, and then explain why other people think it does. But really, drive home like, like they don't have to worry about that. And if someone tells them they're going there, just ignore it. You don't have to worry about it because you know you don't want them to insult, especially like younger ages to insult what someone else believes. You don't want them to be like, well, that's stupid. My dad said that's dumb. Like, You want them to just kind of respect, because these kids don't have a choice either. They're only, they only know what their parents are telling them. And so it's about like, you know, look, you know, if Johnny tells you you're going to hell, just tell them you don't think so. And leave it at that. Uh, but they should know it's not real. Don't, like, if, if, if when, when my son asked me what God is, I explained to him what people think God is. And I tried to do so in a sort of fair way. Like I wasn't trying to make it sound like really goofy. And I let him decide, like, he's like, oh, I don't think that sounds true. Now, I could have got a different answer. I was happy with the answer I got from him. But uh, you have to let them get there. You can't just say, because I'm this, you're this. Because that's what we do with the religious kids. You know, a four-year-old says, I'm Catholic. Well, why are they saying they're Catholic? Because their parents told them they are. They didn't come to that conclusion on their own. Uh, you know, my, my, my oldest has never said I'm an atheist. Because he doesn't know what that means. He's an atheist because he's never had religion put into his life. But that doesn't really, like, that only in a dictionary makes him an atheist. But, like, he has to label himself in a, in a way that he wants. That's not up to me. And so I never told him he is one. Uh, and I won't. But, you know, 
but when it comes to something that's traumatic, why why tiptoe around it? Why let him think there's a possibility that they could suffer? Just I just call that one right out. Get rid of it immediately. Like I think that's one of the few times in the book too. I say like, just let's not let's not <laughs> let's not be nice about it. it. Does that one cut and dry? Doesn't exist. Move on. No, you're right because it is really stressful, and that's a lot of stress to put on a little kid. They'll they'll probably be introduced to that idea way earlier than they have the stress management skills to deal with it. Right, and the critical thinking skills to really like sit down and think like. Could this be true? They're just going to hear, well, three kids at my school think it's true, so it must be. Actually, you brought up another interesting point about talking to your oldest kid, which is that he doesn't know what atheism is because that's just kind of what's normal to him. So he doesn't know he doesn't know his way of thinking is any different. But I've often found that people who really identify and have to let you know they're atheist, if you don't, they assume they're the only atheist. But there are a lot of people who only grew up atheists so they don't know that that's any different that that's strange to some people so they don't say it out loud so i I find a lot of atheists then feel like we're a minority and we're just surrounded by believers because surely every atheist will let you know right away that they're an atheist yeah there's a lot of um i i i I think especially i think the more that i do this especially is that i find people that just didn't grow up with it and so they never had that like uh, the firebrands in them because it was never a part of their life. They don't, they're not, they don't speak out against it because it didn't affect them really. Uh, and when you're, when you don't grow up with it, you don't feel the need. I think it is. And it is kind of funny. There's that, there's that meme of like the whole row of, um, urinals and they're all empty except for the very last one is somebody. And then someone enters the screen and they walk all across all the empty ones and go right to the next to the guy that's using one. And, and then the next panel is him looking over and going, I'm an atheist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's like, there, there is a sort of like that uh, aspect to uh, what I guess we could call like movement atheism, where it, you just feel the need to tell everybody. Like you walk into a room and they're like, hey, can I get you a drink? Sure, I'm an atheist. <laughs> You're like no one asked. <laughs> it's not everybody, but there are some people who give you that CrossFit vibe. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, well, there, there's the, the old joke: if, if if there's an atheist who does CrossFit, which one does he tell you about first? <laughs> <laughs> so, sticking with hell, we can't talk about that and and not talk about the afterlife. So then, what about that subject? Yeah, so my thought process on this came early when I. I was asked by a Christian who was trying to get me in a gotcha moment. And he said, if a, if a kid dying of cancer came up to you and said, am I going to heaven? Would you really tell him no? And my answer to that was, of course not. I'd ask him what he thinks. I'd say, do you think you are? And if he said yes, I'd be like, then you are. But it's a kid. And he's dying. So you're going to give them an answer that makes them comfortable. I'm not a monster. Uh, if he said no, I might say, oh, why do you think that? But if he said, well, because I don't think it's real, then I'd let him accept that too, because that's a perfectly acceptable answer. Uh, and so I started thinking about the afterlife. And, you know, how do we deal with that? Because it is easy to tell a kid like, oh, you'll see so-and-so again someday. But why build that up if they don't have to? 
And so I think really it's important at a young age to let them decide because oftentimes the afterlife comes up in a time of mourning. So you're not just, you're not sitting at the kitchen table talking about school and then you just start bringing up, Hey guys, want to talk about what happens after we die? It's usually like when they lose somebody. So a grandparent or an aunt or uncle or something like that. And that's when they have questions about what happens. Um, and in that case, that's when you have that conversation. And when they're really young, you can ask them more what they think and, and let them sort of figure it out. Uh, but like, I mean, I, I just very recently lost my, my father and my son asked me about it. You know what, you know, where's, where is he? And I said, you mean like, you know, like as a person, they said, yeah. And I said, he's in the stories we tell. Every time you ask me about him, that's where he is. Every time I talk to you about him, that's where he is. When anybody talks about him. And he had no, I don't think he has any concept still at this age of, I had, I don't, he's never really mentioned it, but he was curious about like what happens to somebody. Cause you know, it, it is, it is a, a strange concept that like suddenly it's just off one day you're on one day you're off. Uh, I did ask him, I said, do you remember what it was like before you were born? And he said, no. And I said, well, that's what it's like. I was like, you know, there's no suffering. There's no pain. There's no sad. There's just, you know, it's it's just not that you know it's it's just gone. But you get to remember, you get to remember him. That's about my dad. It's like you know, you get to remember that, and you get to you know look at pictures, and we can talk about it anytime you want. And he was fine with that. Like he wasn't. There was no process in his head where he's like, "Well, I need to know that." He didn't ask like if he could see him or if he could talk to him. He was okay with the fact that like that's it. And now we're just going to have to remember him. So let me ask you this. If there is no afterlife, does life still have meaning? Uh, well, yes. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> uh, and, 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 I, and I bring this up too in the book. Like, our, the, our, our purpose and meaning in our lives are what we make of it. No one has one single meaning. I can't tell you what yours is. And you can't tell me what mine is. But we all decide what we're going to do with our life. You know, some people go into humanitarian work. Uh, some people just want to have a family. Some people don't want to have a family. They just want to have fun. Whatever that is, that's your, that's, that's the meaning of life. You only get one. Do like, if, if, if what you want to do with it isn't hurting anybody else, then do it. That's all the meaning you need. Also what you said earlier about your dad living on in stories. I think there's a meaning to that. The stories we tell, we find meaning in the things we talk about. It doesn't have to be an afterlife. Things can keep existing in our minds and keep having meaning because meaning exists in our thoughts, in our minds and the stories we tell each other. Exactly. That to me helped even me as an adult. Uh, because, you know, you, you, even, even myself, like suddenly there's somebody I can't talk to anymore. And, you know, I have family members being like, you can talk to him whenever you want. He can hear you. And I'm not taking that away from them. I'm not going to be like, that's, no, I can't. Uh, but, you know, when you hear that and you're like, oh, I can't. And you feel bad about it. And then you kind of, and then for, even for a, a moment, like I was like, you know, I almost envied them that they really believed that because I gave them something. 
And then I kind of realized, well, I have something too. I'm not being left out here because I'll always have the memories. I'll always have, you know, the stories to tell. Like my, I, you know, I have two kids and, and, and they're younger. So I have a lifetime of stories to tell. So I get to remember him all the time and I get to talk about him all the time. And, 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 uh, to me, that's, that's great. You know, at his, um, memorial, I, I spoke and talked about, um, how many people came up to me at it and, and talked about like how he helped them in some way. My dad was the kind of guy that, you know, if, if you called him and said, my power's out or something, I need this, or I can't get my car to start, he would jump in his car and come do what he had to do. No questions asked. He'd be there. And hearing that was wonderful. And so I said, you know, knowing that, like, if maybe your phone rings one day and someone needs help and you go and help them, and it's because my dad did that for you, then that's him living on. And so those are the kinds of things that like I tell my kid about my, my dad and, uh, and I'll tell him about, you know, the next person that passes in his life. We'll have that same kind of conversation about the legacy we leave, which sort of ties into your question about the meaning of life. Like it's what we leave behind. And, and for me, that, that is a lot of things. I don't have a single meaning in my life. You know, I have my kids to raise. I have, I have my wife. I've got, I mean, I coach youth hockey. I uh, work for a labor union. Like all these things bring different meanings into my life. I get to help improve people's work and uh, well-being. And I get to teach little kids uh, about, uh, you know, teamwork and uh, all these different aspects. And I get to raise children who are going to go into the world and and make their contributions and you know i and all those little things build into my meaning in my life and like i said i you can't tell me what mine is and i can't tell you what yours are because yours could be drastically different or they could be very similar but you know kind of all kind of wrapping back into everything we've been talking about like at the end of the day like this is the one thing we get and that's it. And I'm going to make the best of it. And my moral compass says I'm going to make the best of it without hurting anybody else. And if I can, I'm going to help people along the way. I think a lot of people, when they get to the other side of what you talked about, the 10 steps after you leave the faith, right? You, you, maybe you're at first an asshole, but then on the other side, when you finally get to the other side, you're like, you know what? You only get one life. Let's be kind now. Exactly. And I think that it does hit a lot of people eventually. It can take a little time. Uh, and it doesn't hit everybody. I mean, no. I, have a, I have a book coming out about how it didn't hit some people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, it does, like, it, in the end, like, if you really think about what you left behind, why would you try to repeat that and have such a narrow scope of what good is or who's good and... Uh, how people can be redeemed, you know, and it almost, it almost to the same respect that like right now we we're having this massive debate in the United States about like a quote unquote free college that everyone has this right to an education. And how many times we hear the argument, I had to go in debt to go to college. So why should they get it for free? Like, well, what do you mean? Like, because 
the society was crap when you were doing this? You want other people to suffer too? Like, if you remember how bad it was for you, why would you want it to be bad for somebody else? Eye for an eye, man. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, you pull that right out of the Bible, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I used to I used to roll my eyes at a bumper sticker I used to see that said an eye for an eye makes the world go blind. But oh my God, is it true? It doesn't make any sense to go through life that way. Yeah, it sucks if you had to pay for your college debt and, and struggle for that long. But you knew it sucked and you knew it was unjust. So why do other people have to do it too? If we now know we can fix that. It is a weird personality test where some people is like, I suffered. I don't want other people to suffer. But then other people are like, I suffered. I want other people to suffer. Yeah. And you even find it in, 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 in liberal leaning people who don't catch it. And some, like, they'll think, hey, everyone deserves to go to college. And then you bring up immigration and they're like, well, my grandmother came here legally and she had to struggle for years i don't know why these people can't come here legally too and you just kind of tilt your head and you're like think about what you just said like you think that they should have to suffer like you're not even taking into account how hard of a thing that is to do like your grandmother or whatever was lucky that they got in this easily and it's harder now and the world is different now and they don't take these things into account. They just sort of look at it very black and white. They did it, so so can they. And life doesn't work that way. And in every aspect that we can make it so that everybody gets the same thing, I think that's the way we should be structuring our society. Um, and it's hard to get people there sometimes. Yeah, it's like, what, what does your grandmother have to do with anything, right? It's like, I had, you know, a hot dog for lunch. Does that mean everybody has to have hot dogs? Like, what, what does my personal experience have to do with policy, you know? Exactly. And, um, and I, I, I get that, like, it can be sometimes hard to let go because you had to suffer and other people don't. But in that same respect, like, that's how we are looking at, like, the, like solving poverty. Yeah, some people have got their way out of it, they, but not everybody does. But only because some people do it, everyone else should have to stay in poverty unless they can figure out how to do it too, or they get that one lucky thing that happens to them. Or like, I don't, it's hard for me to grasp that thought process of like everyone's life happens the same so that everyone's footing is equal. We just don't live in that society. And I think people have a hard time letting go of that thought that it isn't equal for everybody. Not, we don't all start in the same place and then lose our way. We all start in different places and then some people are able to get out of it. Some people start at the top and fall to the bottom. But why does that exist at all? We're going back to your book now. Some people will have no issue coming out atheist, but you have a a whole section just about coming out atheist. Why did you feel this deserved this own section? I think that coming out, and, and I'll preface this the same way I talk about it in the book, is that this advice doesn't apply to everybody because there are people that live in situations where they can't. You know, uh, and, and I won't even talk about outside the U.S. I mean, there's parts of outside, there's parts of the world where that will just get you killed. Um. But, you know, like what we talked about earlier, this book is very U.S. centric on what we know here and the life I'm living. So we'll stick with that. There are places here where your family will disown you. Uh, 
your job will fire you. Uh, so there's there are there are circumstances where you just can't. You might be as atheist as they come, and you got to keep pretending you're not. And to those people, I'm not going to try to push them out. They don't need to risk. There's there's no need in risking your livelihood or your well being for the A word. But there are people that I still meet that don't do it because they have a unnecessary fear or they don't want to deal with like, Oh, that could be uncomfortable. Cause like I know a couple Christians, but what that does is number one, you just assume that that couple Christians that, you know, aren't doing the same thing you are. And it doesn't normalize it. And I think one goal in all of this is that, and I, I'm going to regret quoting this because it's Sam Harris, but uh, he did talk a long time ago about really there should be a word. Atheism is a weird word because we don't have a word for people that don't believe in leprechauns or unicorns or other things that you don't believe in. Generally, if you don't believe in something, there's not a word for it. Uh, but it's become so abnormal at least like at least in perceptionalized to be an atheist that we apply a label and then like not only a label but then we also apply like attributes to it what makes you an atheist which causes a lot of trouble um, but now we're getting to a point where like we can start to normalize it so it kind of goes away and the reason i kind of devoted so much of this was that if I'm in a position where I can be open about it, that might make it easier for somebody else to do it as well. And they'll feel less alone because I also meet so many people that feel lonely being an atheist. They're like, I live in Texas and I'm the only atheist I know. And I, my first thought is bullshit. You're not the only atheist, you know, but none of you can come out. And so as we build that and change that, we're helping the people that feel like right now they can't come out because they're going to get like frowned upon or lose things. Uh, there's a, I think it's Julia Sweeney is her name. She used to be on SNL. Uh, she had a, a thing where she, I think she was talking to her mom and her mom's like, you're a what? And she's like, I know you don't believe in God, but an atheist. <laughs> like, but that's the that's the mindset of a lot of this country, is that oh yeah I'm fine if you don't believe in God but you don't, don't be an atheist, like that's a weird. <laughs> but it's because we've applied what being an atheist means, and that's silly because really, and this is this is partially one of the downsides of normalizing atheism along the journey. When we get to the end, it'll be worth it. But Richard Spencer is an atheist. I mean, he's a Nazi piece of garbage, and he's an atheist, and he does he's not shy about it. He will say, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Now, that's a bad image for atheism where it is now, because atheism is still on this track where people kind of apply what it means to be an atheist. But when all is said and done, and people don't care anymore, then people won't say, oh, you're an atheist like Richard Spencer? That's not, they're not going to care. 
they're gonna be like, oh yeah, I so is uh Steve from the gas station. Or so is this person. Yeah, and, and no one's gonna care that people don't believe in the same thing. And but to get there, we have to normalize it first. And to normalize it, we have to make it so that everybody can be comfortable in saying what they believe. And one way of doing that is to come out if it's safe for you. And by doing that, your neighbor that might not know you're an atheist, but thinks you're one of the nicest people in the world because you always mow their lawn and you always help them when their car won't start. And you're always there to like bring them groceries. And then they find out you're an atheist. That's going to change their perception of what atheism is if they have a negative perception. Um, you know, I used to have a sticker on my car that said good without a God. And I gave a talk once and I talked about how, you know, that sticker doesn't say anything offensive at all. But maybe someone will see it after I help them do something. A car is broken down the side of the road and I pull over and I help them out. Or someone's struggling to get groceries in the car and I, they're next to me and I just jog over there real quick and help them out. And then as I'm leaving, they see the sticker and they think nothing of it. But it might come to a time where they're at work and someone's talking about uh, those atheists, this and that. And they're going, yeah, actually, you know what? Someone once pulled over and helped jump my car and they were the nicest people I ever met. And you just change that perception piece by piece, and eventually it grows into something better. And then one day, that person living in the middle of nowhere in Texas won't, won't feel that their parents will disown them or their job will fire them if they say, oh, yeah, I'm not going to church this week with you guys. I don't believe in God. And they'll just say, okay, see you on Monday. But we can't get there if we continue to, number one, closet ourselves if we don't have to. But secondly, by doing that, we just let the Dawkins and the Harrises and those be the voice of what atheism is. And as long as they're the voice of what atheism is, we're in trouble. Yeah. I mean, even going back to Richard Spencer, he's kind of what I consider an in-betweener going along with the stuff you were saying where people aren't fully leaving the church. Because the only reason why atheism even comes up for him is because he's explaining that he's a cultural Christian. What do you mean by that? And it's like, I don't believe in a God, but I believe in the values of Christianity, right? And then I've also seen Richard Dawkins post and tweet about Judeo-Christian values and stuff. So it's like what we were talking about earlier. They left, but they haven't fully left. It's like, oh, that part of it is fake, but this other stuff is true and it's better than all the rest. And it is capital T truth. They have the answers on values and morals, and this is the good stuff. So it's like it's a different type of atheism, and it's not even the type of atheism, especially with Dawkins and Harris, that they initially sold. They sold it as they were fully out, but then now you're realizing, no, 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 you weren't fully out. You were out of it like 50%, but you bought all the cultural aspects of it. Or they realized that there's no money in just pandering to atheists and that if you <laughs> if you play your cards right you can also make a bunch of money from the other people because i you know i keep an eye on harris and he did a, a, a reddit ask me anything an ama and someone commented in there i love your podcast it's so great but you know i don't like it when you rail on religion you're like all the other stuff you say is so great but when you start going off after religion i don't know where that's coming from and it's because he has changed course so drastically that he now panders to a different audience. 
and an audience that didn't even realize that he literally only has a career because of atheism. He sold that hard. And now, and he was, he was perplexed by it. He was tweeting like, how can this be? And I'm like, well, cause now you only, you pander to right wing extremists and Nazis and they're shocked to find out that there's more to you than that. Like they came here for the racial profiling only to find out you also don't believe in God. <laughs> um, and so I think a lot, I don't, I won't, I won't throw as much of that on Dawkins because I don't think when he was doing his, I remember the like cultural Christian stuff, his was less involved in like the shocked people would think this. But uh, I think we also, we also have to be aware that to a degree, people have realized that the atheist bubble itself has kind of popped and that to make a career, you've got to branch out. And, you know, you got Harris, his podcast is very ever about religion uh, especially christianity in the u.s he could do a thousand podcasts about how wrong islam is and the christians will love him for days and then he questions christianity and i'm like wait what are you doing like wrong side guy so there is also that like balancing act of i don't think richard spencer is much of a cultural christian but i think he knows how to play his audience I think the most fervent fans of all of these people are people who kind of tuned in in the last five years. So they might not even be aware of the change that these people went through. So I know a lot of people who are newer fans of Sam Harris who aren't aware of his atheism, who think he's the same as a Dennis Prager or a Ben Shapiro in beliefs. Right. Yeah, because you can you come in at a different time in their career and you didn't watch that the, the story change. You didn't watch that arc. You come in now and you see, oh, he's he's just like a Joe Rogan. <laughs> I actually have said that in previous podcasts about Joe Rogan. The people who are most critical of Joe Rogan are people who've been following him since the beginning. But all the all the people who just started listening to him in the last three years, they're the the biggest defenders of him. Because to them, he's consistent. Whereas to everybody else, they're like, dude, he's flip-flopped a lot. Yep. Oh, and then the same can be said of Dave Rubin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the ultimate grifter. Oh, yeah. The people that don't realize that he came from uh, the Young Turks, those are the funniest. Like, dude, that, <laughs> that guy's been the most more inconsistent than any, all of them combined. Like, that guy will just change views at the drop. You just write a check and he'll change his view. <laughs> yeah. Now, once you're out as an atheist, how do you deal with religious family members then? Like you were talking about with your family members who, you know, still ask you a bazillion questions about what if this, what if that? How do you deal with that? You cut them all off and you start over. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that might be the easiest one. <laughs> uh, honestly, I found uh, honesty. It, it, and it's going to get you one of two things. I have a grandmother who thinks i don't like her because she believes in god i don't give a crap what she believes i know she believes in god i'm not trying to change her mind but i uh, my grandmother and me have different we don't we get along fine but we have a much different moral compass as far as like how humans should be treated uh she's very fundamentalist she's very right uh, conservative um and i'm I, I'm so far left. Karl Marx is wondering why I'm so far left. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, there's a lot of things we don't agree on. And if those come up, they can create tension. But she doesn't look at that as creating tension. She looks at, like, she'll send me an email. She's like, I know we don't talk a lot. And it's because you have, a, you have trouble with me believing in God. 
And it's like, no, I have a trouble with your Blue Lives Matter sticker, not your belief in God. <laughs> but she can't, she can't get there. Uh, but I'm very honest with her about what I believe and why I believe it. And I try to tell her that I have no problem with it. And it's up to her to accept that. And if she can't, that sucks, but she can't. I'm, um, and so the rest of my family, I just tell them where I lay, where I stand. And I let them know that I'm not trying to stop them from believing what they believe. I'm not judging them from believing what they believe. We're family. And I just kind of let it go with that. And if, if they're curious or they want to have a discussion, I'm open to it. Uh, but I think in, in the same way that you might be with your friends, like you're just careful of how far you push because you don't want to create like a fight. But uh, they also they also need to know where you stand. Some of the saddest things I hear are like the people that are like, I hate it when my family makes me stand around and hold hands and pray at uh, events. And like, it's so awkward and I feel so uncomfortable. And I'm like, well, why do you do it? And they're like, well, because I have to. My, it's my family. And I'm like, you don't have to. If, if you're showing them the respect that you're going to do it, but if you're uncomfortable, they should be able to send that same respect to you. And if you're comfortable doing it, because you know it makes maybe your great-grandmother happy and you know she doesn't have much time left, and if you stood there holding hands, it would just make her feel better and you're okay with it, do it. Why not? No reason not to. You, you're not praying. You're just standing there. But if it actually makes you uncomfortable, why are you still doing it? You need to also stand up for yourself and they have, just like you're accepting them for who they are, they have to accept you for who that you are. And, uh, so I think really it's just, it's just about being upfront, honest. And, you know, I, there, I, I won't lie. There are going to be situations where someone cuts you off. There might be a family member who doesn't want to talk to you anymore, but take the higher road there. Tell them that you're going to be there when they just, when they change their mind. Tell them that you understand that they're having a hard time with this and that you're not going to pressure them, but that you'll be there and put it on them. The onus is on them at that point because you haven't done anything wrong. You haven't told them like, you know, you're not going and being like, you're wrong. You did this. You're, you're, you're dumb for believing this. You're just saying, look, I don't believe the same thing as you. And if they can't accept that, it has to be on them. It can't be on you. Um, and then you just have to, you know, depending on how much that relationship means to you, you make you make the effort that you think is justified and, and staying connected with them. But at the end of the day, if they're rejecting you and won't talk to you, it's because they can't accept you for who you are. And family or not, you don't have to put yourself through that. Like, you don't have to suffer for family. That's a really important point. You don't have to suffer for family or, or really anybody. Right. Yeah. You know, you, we, we put ourselves out there sometimes or we feel like we have to, to tiptoe around other people to make them happy. And oftentimes the one thing you hear is, well, I have to, they're family. But you don't. You, family cannot make you feel like crap. If family makes you feel bad, then you need to do something about it. And I, cutting off family can be one of the hardest things in the world to do. But sometimes for your own mental health it has to be done now do you suggest teaching kids about all religions uh, i think it's important that they know the fundamentals 
and, and this then this will also really depend on where you live, where they go to school, who they know, uh, and how you teach it. But my kid doesn't doesn't know anything about Buddhism because it's not coming up in his life. I see. But eventually, he's gonna hear about it, uh, like we all did at some point. But he has Christian friends. His friends have asked him what church he goes to, and so to me, it was important that. I didn't tell him, and I think I said this earlier, like my fairy tale version of what Christianity is. I told him exactly what Christians believe. And I didn't and I didn't go to the extreme or to the moderate. I kind of stayed right there in the middle and said, they believe that there's this being called God. He created all of the earth, he created all of the people, and that he's watching what we do. And if we do good. You know, you get rewarded. If you do bad, you get punished. And that's how they look at life. Unless they're that. They don't have to go, they have to get really super philosophical. They believe, uh, you know, his son came down and this and this. That will come later. Because uh, he also, we're also surrounded by people that are very into Christmas um, at varying levels. And some of that is very, very religious. Uh, and, and then you kind of deal with those as they come. But, he knows very little about Islam because it doesn't come up. He knows a little bit because he's, he's now like at school and they do current events and the news is a thing in his life a little bit more and he can hear the radio when I'm driving to work. So he's got, you know, questions about what happened there, who did that. And you can, you know, and that's when you kind of introduce, well, you know how we talked about your friend, blah, 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 who's a Christian. Well, there's other people that actually believe this and uh it's called islam and they believe xyz and you guys do it in the same way in the same format because they're all relatively cookie cutter uh, and he understands what they believe but at this at certain ages it becomes here's what they believe now how do you feel about that or i'll say like you know your mom and dad don't believe that but i won't say you don't believe that but i'll let him know that i'm, I'm always honest about what i believe but I always try to frame it in this is what I believe. And then uh, I'll tell him why if he asks, but I try not to really push on him. But, but they ask, you know, well, what do you think? And I'll say, you know, I don't, I don't think God is real. Uh, I said, some people do, and they think I'm wrong. And I think they're wrong. And I kind of leave it at that and let him differentiate. But it is important that as they grow, and even as they get older and they're, and they're relying less on parents for information, that they do learn about world religions. Because it is important that we understand that we're not all the same and that we all believe different things. We all come to different conclusions of, because of our different ways of thinking. And we, we need to understand why. And we also need to understand a certain level of respect for the person and why they believe certain things or respect... Uh, that a person might be taking part in a cultural ritual at that moment and that we need to respect that that's something they have chosen to do and not interrupt them. Uh, things like that. So like, you know, I don't want my kid to laugh at somebody if we're downtown and suddenly they, I mean, this doesn't happen, but like if you're downtown and someone puts on a prayer rug and, you know, faces Mecca and goes up, I, I, I remember seeing it on college, on college, in college campuses. Uh, walking to class once and there was like a group of of muslims who put down their rug and they all faced one direction but 
And I don't want him to look over and laugh at that because I'd like him to understand what it is. And I was like, look, I, I don't believe in that, but they're not hurting anybody. Not doing anything to disrupt anybody's life. They're doing what they think is right. And now we might have to judge them later if they're doing something that we think is wrong and hurting people. And we might have to have that discussion. But it's important to understand and respect people and, and, and their belief because life doesn't work if we all insist that they believe how we do. So don't leave it for them to figure it out through YouTube. <laughs> you might still need a parent. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> don't let them figure anything through YouTube. It's great advice <laughs> for literally everything. <laughs> yeah. If you refuse to parent, there's YouTube. You want that? You want that? So tell us about the Pledge of Allegiance because I came to the U.S. during elementary school. And for the first few years, I was just learning English. So I don't remember much about the Pledge of Allegiance or what any of those words meant. So what is this strange practice all about? <laughs> well, uh, one thing a lot of people don't understand sometimes, or they just don't know, um, is that an act of patriotism is, is legal or legally, like it's, it's the law in schools. You have to have an, like an act of patriotism every day. And <laughs> that's the pledge. As a Korean, they make fun of North Korea. Right? Yeah. Great, isn't it? And so that's the pledge. And I have two problems with it. One, which would be the obvious fit for parenting without God, is the fact that we call ourselves one nation under God, uh, which wasn't added into the pledge until the 1950s during the Red Scare. So, you know, those, those atheistic communists over in Russia were taken over and we needed to really affirm our position as God's favorite country. So we added, you know, one nation under God to everything, including the pledge. Wasn't in the original pledge. Uh, and that to me is also alienating for not just atheists, but lots of different religions that don't believe in that exact God. Uh, and so first you're, you're telling people like, okay, you're in this country and now you're going you know, to say that this, this nation is under something you don't believe in or you believe in something else and you're wrong. Uh, my bigger concern is that we're pledging allegiances to flags and countries. <laughs> uh, why? Like, the patriotism is just a skip and a step away from nationalism. They, they ride the same track. Uh, it's one thing to be proud that a bunch of people from your country won a gold medal in an Olympic game. Like, I, I mean, I don't, I personally don't really get the appeal of that myself, but that's one, like, I just, I just watch the sport and whoever wins wins. Like, <laughs> like, especially when it comes to the Olympics, I might like someone else on the other team, but no, I, I like the idea. Like, I don't have a massive overall problem with like sports in that sense of like countries competing. Uh, and I get it. Like you're like, hey, a bunch of people that you know were from here did really well. That's cool. But why are we pledging allegiance to these things? This country doesn't have the best history. What what am I pledging for? What am I, what 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 does this do? Yeah. Why why are we pledging? Is this part of all being like drafted one day? <laughs> like what is this? right? But that's what. It, when we, but but then we mock, like you just said. We, first first we mock, you know, North Korea for you know, their like allegiance to the state. 
And then we pledge allegiance to a flag. But then we're like, man, can you believe that they made all the Nazis stand up and do Nazi salute at school every day? How ridiculous. All right, everyone, place your hand on your heart. <laughs> like every, I mean, really every country does this for the most part. Like, uh, but there is like, there's a weird, there's that weird nationalistic feel to the pledge where you're kind of giving up your own like idea that this country can do wrong things. Like I have no allegiance to this country because this country was built on slavery and continues to bomb the crap out of other countries. I mean, we bomb weddings and say, whoops, uh, we, we have people living in poverty. We have homeless people while we literally have enough houses to fill them. We have people without insurance because we allow insurance company or healthcare because we allow insurance companies. Right? What, why would I want to pledge allegiance to that? There's so many things wrong with this country. I will, I will pledge that I will fight to change this country. Uh, and that's why I'm still here, but I'm not going to pledge some allegiance to something because I have, you have to be able to dissent. And by pledging allegiance, you're, they're trying to take away your right to dissent and a country can't function that way. But I, I just, I just find, I find the whole thing to be very creepy and nationalistic. And that's why I'm very much against it. It is. It is very strange. <laughs> so why did parenting without God need an update? All right. Two reasons. Reason number one, Peter Bergosian wrote the forward to the first one. <laughs> oh, no. What? Yes. But you know, you can never predict what's going to happen to people. You in can the never predict. So, yeah, in 2013, I met Peter Bergosian after he had just published uh, a manual for creating atheists. and. I knew him for maybe a month or two and asked him if he'd write the forward to my book. And he said, yes. And things went swimmingly for quite a while until really just before the election. So leading up to the election, Bogosian kind of went down the path of why are gay people proud? Why do they get a pride parade? <laughs> if they were born that way, they don't get to be proud of that. And that was my first red flag. And I, I engaged him on it. Uh, but even then, like, I was like, you know what? He, he, he's wrong, but I feel like we could change his mind and show him why he's wrong. He's a smart guy. He's a philosophy professor. We can, we can fix this. And then, you know, a Nazi got punched and he just went full on in like, and this, everything about him changed. He, he went the Dave Rubin route. Like, and so I reached out to my publisher and said, look, like I, don't feel comfortable even selling this book anymore. Like I can't, I can't promote it because I don't want people to read his name next to mine. I was like, I really am uncomfortable with the direction he went. Uh, unfortunately for me at that time, my publisher had uh, more books under contract with him and really loves him still. So I was like, I don't know what we do here. And they were honestly, they were gracious enough to say, you know what, if you're not happy and can't sell this book, we don't want it. What are we going to do with it? So they said, we'll give it back to you. And so I got the book back. And I, at that point, it had been out for quite a long time. And I said, you know what? I was like, I've learned a lot along these last few years. Uh, I have two choices. I can either just pull it and be done with it. Or I can reread it and update it. And like I said, I, I went through my, my phase of, of Dawkins and Harris and all of them. And... When I wrote the a book originally, I mean, I started writing it in 2012, and 
they're quoted in there a lot. And there's things that I don't believe that they said, or this is actually things that they said that are totally fine that I just don't want their name in my book anymore. Like the quote may not be problematic, but the person is. Uh, and I think I even left a Dawkins quote in there uh, and just prefaced it with like, look, this is just a really good quote that summarizes what I'm feeling, even though he's problematic now. <laughs> um, but I took out a lot of those things. And also when I wrote that book, uh, same-sex marriage was still illegal. And so I decided I could revisit and update a lot of what I've learned and what's changed. And that changes how we are raising our kids. Cause now we're raising our kids in a world where same sex marriage is legal, but it's still a battle. It's not like it's over, but that changes how we talk about it and how we are going to go forward. And so I reached out to PM press, which was a publishing company. I was really was like reading so many books from and really liked them a lot. Like their stuff they were putting out really didn't exactly fit parenting without God. Great. But their philosophy did. And I reached out and I sent them the book and I sent them my notes of what I'd like to change. And they said, we think it's a great opportunity to update this book. And so I updated it. And uh, I was able to add, I mean, this, this fits very strangely into a parenting book, but it works. It's like, there's a section in there about dealing with the rise of Nazism and, and anti-fascism in this country. Anti-fascism in this country. And we have to talk to our kids about that. Uh, that's like, because like you said, like, Richard Spencer plays the cultural Christian card. But if we're really honest and look at the bulk majority of white supremacy in this country, it comes from a religious place. And that's a conversation that has to be had. And uh, at the same time, when the book you know, focuses on, on, on the moral aspect of raising children and how do we deal with bullies? Well, what's the quintessential bully in, in our history? is the Nazis. And then we look at, like, well, they're kind of trying to make a comeback. And we have to talk to our kids about this. Because you mentioned YouTube earlier. Well, guess where these people are getting their information from? Uh, and kids are going to learn about this. And if we're not talking about it, somebody else is. And so I was able to kind of bring it up to the times and, and write a book that was a bit more timely than me pushing a book that was written like prior to same-sex marriage where you're gonna read it and be like why am i reading about this we've already won this fight and so to me it was just a really great chance to like kind of revitalize something i was very proud of and to keep it moving and so um, i'm really happy i got to do it i'm really happy it's out now now you mentioned earlier that your path to leaving the church was also coinciding with your journey into left politics. So how did that all come about? Yeah, uh, really the, the, the journey to left politics took a little longer. Uh, and, and not to say uh, I went from like conservative to left. I went more from liberal to left. Uh, but yeah, it really came to like how you look at the world and how the, how the church talks about other people and how they other populations so they, you know, these people believe this, and these people do that, and these sinners, and this, and I didn't look at people that way. Uh, I think it's because my my parents didn't, even though they were like they were in the church, they didn't raise me to really 
think of people in that aspect. Even though my church was against same-sex marriage, I never felt that that was something that we were against in my house. Because uh, I felt like my parents didn't really care. Because it didn't bother them any. It didn't change their life. Um, but those those kind of, that thought sort of instilled that whole, like, the self-autonomy. The, the I, I mean, and people are going to, well, maybe not listeners to your show who probably might understand how words work, but like, the libertarianism of life and how we all have a right to do things the way we want, but you can't hurt others along the way, which is where the left leaning side of libertarian comes in the right, the right side of it. It's like, you can do what you want. If you hurt somebody else, well, they should have been looking out. Uh, but, uh, so that sort of started changing the way I, I looked at the world and that journey itself went from you know religion sort of pushing me to how i view people and humanity and when i broke away from that it became well how do we fix it and you know a young uh, idealistic kid well the first thing you're thrown into is the democratic party um and so it's like all right well let's gonna we're gonna get this person elected and you kind of hit the ground running and then like most people that get into politics early, you realize it doesn't work. Um, <laughs> and you start to realize that both sides are kind of fighting for the same thing at different paces. And uh, I started realizing like, well, how, what, what can I do to make the world better if they're not? And that's where, you know, a very long story short is where you end up, you know, you, you pick up your first book by, by Marx or, you know, uh, you watch a couple of videos of, of like socialist and communist speakers talking about, you know, society and you pick up more books and then you start realizing that society can be structured differently. And that's what kind of dragged me to the left was you know, watching these people on the ground doing it. And then you have, I mean, I don't know how much detail you want to go into where you can start looking at, you start following the, the different groups and parties on the left doing stuff in the U S at least. And uh, that pulls and tugs you in different directions. You know, you got the you got like the DSA, Democratic Socialists, and they're, you know, we're socialists, and then they back Hillary Clinton for president. And you're like, well, how? What are you doing to change the world? If at the end of the day you start to lose, you just join the others. You just go back to the status quo. Uh, but then you join, like, I joined the Socialist Party of America, and some of the nicest people I've ever met. But I realized they weren't doing anything to make a difference. They met a lot. They complained a lot about things. But it was hard to find, and this isn't to say that they all know, but it was hard to find big numbers of them doing anything. Like, homelessness in this town is a problem people are going hungry and then they sit around for days talking about it instead of holding a food drive or opening up a like you know a, a, a food pantry they just didn't do them they would talk about how they need them or this but they didn't there was no action to their anger um but then i'm watching the news or or watching the news online um which would be more accurate and you see that like Hurricane Katrina hits, and uh, an, an anarchist group from California or Texas drove there 
and set up a shelter and brought food and brought community protection. And I kept seeing these scenes repeat. And that's, that was like an aha moment, honestly, when I said, those are my people. Those are the ones doing it. And then you look locally and you find that they're at the park on Saturdays handing out socks and underwear and canned food. And that's when I started to piece together what my political identity now is, was that it's finding those, the people that were on the ground. And it didn't matter what they called themselves. It mattered what they were doing. I think the umbrella term a lot of people use is leftist, right? And I find a parallel with your story about atheism in that just as leaving the church, leaving Christianity or whatever your faith is can be painful, I found that a lot of people go through the same kind of pain leaving liberal politics and going further left, left of liberal. They, they, they lose a lot of friends. They question everything that they believed before. It becomes really painful. You get attacked. It's, it's very similar. It is because there's also that like, well, you're leaving the Democratic Party. Well, then you're just part of the problem. And there's a lot of guilt to that. You're the devil. <laughs> yeah. But the liberal side refuses to look at the actions being taken. And, 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 and where you see that is when they, they view voting as more powerful than a food pantry. And that's, that, that right there to blame is our government itself. Because uh, in, our, in our educational system and all that. Because they kind of just want us to only have a vote. And the vote isn't set up very well so that the person who deserves to win wins. It's, you know, we have the Electoral College. We have all these different, and gerrymandering, all these things that tweak how voting works. But then they sell it to us as the ultimate power. If you want to make change, vote. And they leave out the rest. And what you have is, is this mindset of, well, if I want people to be fed and housed, well, then I need to vote for someone who's going to feed and house them. And the thought process is never, how am I going to feed and house these people? It's, I'm going to vote to feed and house these people. And so when you tell someone that, like, I'm leaving all of that behind, I'm done with that, it doesn't work, and I want direct action, I want immediate results, because we can do it, and if we organize, we can make these things happen. And you're demonized for it. And, and so that's a, it's hard to get people there because they have to let go. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean you can't vote. I know plenty of far leftists who still go tick a box. And they might feel it's rather useless. But they're like, well, if it's if five minutes out of my day, it's the least I can do to maybe make someone less bad in office. Multitasking. You can multitask. You can, multitask. You can organize but and I, do that. I, I did make the argument during what was Trump versus Clinton. And I said... You know, if you really do think about it, if our goal is to reach A to B or A, a to A to Z, even, uh, is that easier to do with Clinton or Trump in office? So, does it make a strategical sense to try to put a liberal in office and then forget them and focus on what you're doing? But at least you can know that you have someone not trying to undo things that you then have to go back again so like 
to put a, a Trump in office, they want to undo don't ask, don't tell. They want to undo abortion rights. They want to undo same-sex marriage. And that stops progress because then you have to go back again and redo those. Is it easier to put somebody in office who maybe the things they have planned are obstacles, but at least they're forward obstacles and we don't have to circle back around. And uh, that's just that's a strategical decision that people have to make. Because at the same time, you are checking a box with somebody who you know is going to drop a bomb on a Middle Eastern country, who you know is going to send troops to war. And so you have to, each person themselves has to balance that and figure out where it fits for them. So it's not only strategic, but it's also a moral question. And like you said, with kids, you can't tell them what to do. They have to figure it out for themselves, but they should balance all these things in their minds when they make an informed decision. Exactly. And that it actually leads into exactly where I was about to go is that I will not shame somebody who does or doesn't vote because they're making a decision based on what they think is the best course of action. And for some people, it's there. Some people are just going to get to that point where they're like, look, I can't watch another person have a bomb dropped on them. And I know that either side I vote for is going to do it. And I can't endorse that. Or there are people I've talked to who said, look, I know both of them are going to do it. But at least this person isn't going to do X and Y while they're doing that. And my goal is to do this under that presidency or under this, you know, uh, city council member or, you know, we, we talk so much about the presidency, we forget about local, but like, it's this whole string, but each person has to make that decision. And I leave it up to that person. So if, if a Democrat loses an election, I will never blame a third party voter or a, a non-voter because really the only person to blame is the person that didn't sell us on their on 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 their stance so they didn't come to us and say look you guys are really against this bombing thing let's have a seat and talk about this maybe i'm wrong they don't do that they just say i'm the democrat vote for me it's me or him and that's the message and that doesn't work and so that's the person that's to blame if the third party has a better message then they're not to blame for the loss they had a better message. And if the person said, look, I'm not voting for any of it because none of it works. Well, that's also a failure of, of the politician because they didn't sell you on the fact that maybe they of why they believe it works and why you should partake. And so like, I'm, I'm done with the whole shaming thing. You people try to shame me for saying I'm not, I will not vote for uh, a Kamala Harris or I will not vote for a Buttigieg and, and on and on and on. Because I will not take a box next to those names. I'm not putting my name with theirs. I can't do it. Uh, and it, I, I'm shamey for days. All you want it is going to roll right off my back because I went into that with much more thought than vote blue, no matter who. But I can understand why people have a hard time getting there because the shame is real. The shame, the shaming comes down hard. So there's two terms that you've used that are kind of inside baseball, let's say inside politics, right? Regular people, casual people might not know what those words mean or maybe misunderstand those words. So those two words are anarchist and mutual aid. So I'll start with mutual aid. I think that's probably the easiest. <laughs> but uh, 
you know, mutual aid kind of comes back to what I talked to uh, when I said, you know, I watched like groups go to Katrina, like it, they went into New Orleans and they brought they brought aid with them. They saw people in need and showed up. They had the means to do it, and so they did it. And I think society can very much be structured in that sense where I have food, you need food. You have wood, and I need wood. And this person has uh, this skill set and this skill set. And we all live in a society together where we just make sure we all have what's needed. We don't have to take more than what's needed, but we don't have to take less. And so to me, mutual aid is about, it's not just about disaster relief. It's about our communities and making sure everyone has what they need to be comfortable. They have a home, they have food, they have clothing, they have medical care. And we all are bringing in different skill sets to the world we live in. And it's about how do we fit those in so that we all benefit from a society built like that where you don't have to suffer through not having something, but I have lots of it. I'm going to make sure you have it. And if the next person has it, and then you do the same for me with what you have. And, you know, I, I think the simplest way, which dumbs it down too much, but works, is almost like a barter system where it's like, you know, like, like a trade system where like you're giving, but it's about taking care of each other and making sure that everyone is, is taken care of. And, that's what I, that's what we saw with these natural disasters happen. Uh, you know, the, the the very popular anarchist Scott Grow talks about how he went to New Orleans armed with a group of other armed leftists, and they provided uh, community defense to a, a a black community who was being terrorized by white supremacists after Katrina, because it became a lawless land where the cops didn't go there anymore. And this was a community that was in danger. And they went and offered to defend them. At their own personal risk, went and said, we're here for you. And they helped in the community. But they also said, if these people come to try to harm you, we will stand up for you. But that's mutual aid. That's being there for each other as human beings, regardless of of wealth status or class status or, or color of skin or education, nothing, none of that mattered. It's about making sure people had what they needed. And it means no more billionaires sitting on loads of wealth that could greatly benefit society. Uh, and then really like anarchist and anarchism is built on that foundation. Uh, you know, it's, it's like I said earlier, self-autonomy. So you've got, that's, that's the libertarianism of it, which is, you know, we're all free people, or we should be all free people. And to, to if I want to be an artist, if I want to, I mean, I, I, I hate to like make it sound like so right libertarian, but like, if I want to do drugs, things like that, like there's, and that's a, backtrack on that because there is a that can't harm other people but um there's certain uh i have a a, a, a autonomy over my life and how my family lives as long as we're not hurting others but at the same time and this is where it really diverges from right libertarianism is that it doesn't come at a 
cost to you either, where I'm going to grow all this food myself and then hoard it. I'm going to grow all this food and then I'm going to feed people mutual aid. And but the people around me are going to participate in this as well. And so it's the coupling of these two ideas of, 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 of autonomy plus the mutual aid and, and coming together to make sure that we're all safe, we're all happy, and we're all taken care of. And I think a lot of times people get confused because they think of words like anarchy and they think chaos and lawlessness. And they think of a punk spray painting a big circle A on a sign somewhere. And uh, uh, I recently had this conversation on an airplane with somebody and they were like, they're like, how can you call yourself a moral person if you believe in chaos? And I was like, there's no chaos to it. Uh, I kind of defer back to like what Karl Marx referred to as primitive communism. Think about society of hunters and gatherers. They all work together. There's people that hunted the food. There's people that grew some food. There's people that prepared the food. There are people that took care of the elderly. There are people that took care of the kids. All in harmony. So that they all benefited mutually. I would take care of your kid while you went out and hunted. Because that was a service I could offer you for something I couldn't do myself. And these societies really did fairly well for themselves. Um, they, you know, they lived off what the land had to offer, but didn't overdo it because they knew that would be detrimental to their survival. And, uh, you know, and so there's no chaos to that. It's not chaotic. It's not anarchy as people think of it. And that's why like, we don't call it anarchy and we call it uh, anarchism. It becomes another ism. Uh, in the long string of isms that we have. Uh, but it's it's just a, a, a different way of looking at the structure of society. And really, it's not as crazy to think about as, as people believe because it's, it's the breaking that mindset of uh, competition. Uh, that's, that's, I think that might be the biggest hurdle too, is that people don't think that we're inherently good because they see the ruthless competition that takes place in this world. But that ruthless competition is created and it's really created through things like capitalism and this, like this, I have to, I have to step on you. If I want to get to this next step, I have to take you down. Otherwise you're going to get it. And Anarchists look at it as, well, why can't you both have it? Like, you don't have to compete with each other to have a better life. We should all have a better life. You know, back to the college thing. Like, you, because you suffered at one point doesn't mean everybody else should. Why don't we build towards a society where no one suffers? At least we should be minimizing as much suffering as we can. And we should work towards making sure people have things like food and housing. And, you know, we, I, I mentioned it earlier again, like we have enough houses for everybody. Why aren't we in control of them and just filling them? Everyone would have a home. Everybody. 
And why, they, they shouldn't have to pay for it. We all have one. And then we're all good there. Now we have food. And now we look at the, the food in this country. Honestly, we can buy food we throw away. Like, we don't even have to get crazy radical to feed everybody here. We already have the homes. We already have food. But the food we don't have, we already have the budget for. You don't even have to overthrow the government to fix these things. You just have to change the way we think about them. Like, we can feed everybody if we even cut our military budget in half. Or even a quarter of it. Because, number one, we've got the money there could feed mostly the world. But we also throw away so much food. We waste so much food. And uh, we do that to create the markets that make these people rich. But if we take that profit drive out and just think of food as a right and not a commodity, that problem is solved in a heartbeat. Uh, and that applies to healthcare and like, like back to housing and all of that. And anarchists look at the world in that sort of structured sense of it's here. Why aren't we doing it? And I think that's I, 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 sort of what differentiates anarchists from uh, some of your more standard Marxists is that we're also not looking at like, okay, so to get from point A to point B, that's, this takes an armed revolution. Uh, armed uh, revolution. I, I think a lot of us think that we can just do this within the society that we live in. Uh, and I'll, I can't tell you how many times I reference the Black Panthers. You know, they saw a, they saw a void in their communities. And they didn't go overthrow the government to fix it. They built food pantries. They built medical centers. And and they built after-school programs and and food programs for kids. They didn't do anything that can't be done. They didn't take guns and storm the White House. They took houses and said, this is where we're going to put an after-school program. And they created one for their community. And they were very successful. That scared the crap out of the government, but uh, but you don't have to go leaps and bounds out of out of like these massive dreams of like utopia to create pockets of good. And if you create enough of those, you can start to actually make huge differences everywhere. And if we all just work together to do it, with or without the government standing around being like, "Hey, we're the government." We can just make them obsolete. We don't have to overthrow them. <laughs> we can kind of just take away their role or what they think their role is. Being from Oregon, and maybe it's because I was born in another country, but from what I'm used to, left politics and atheism go hand in hand. Or if you leave the church, that also means you're leaving conservatism and capitalism. But that's not what it seems to mean anymore. And I sometimes joke with people that I miss old atheism because new atheism seems like it's just neoliberalism, meaning I miss atheism when it was interchangeable with socialism because that is not what it means anymore. So what is the state of movement atheism or the atheist community now? So you bring up, <laughs> you segue into a really great plug for a book on PM Press that I wrote the introduction for called uh, Godless. Um, and I actually, in my intro to it, I, I talk about how the left has 
forgotten the the slogan of anarchism from the old days was no gods, no masters. And uh, we've, in that sense, we've allowed new atheism to become like what no gods in that means. And they now control the narrative of what atheist is. And that's been very poisonous because the state of movement atheism, which uh, a lot of people try to fight me on the term, but I mean, at the height of it all, there was multiple conferences around the country and world devoted to atheism where people traveled and stayed for weekends and heard speakers and took part. That's a movement. That's a thing. You, If you're literally being able to hold conferences and people are making careers out of atheism, there's something happening. And that became a movement and it became a thing. And that thing, unfortunately, didn't stick to where the political guides that you would anticipate. I think you would have, if someone would have predicted in 98, if you would have said, there's going to be an atheist movement in the early 2000s, and they would be like, oh God, that's going to be, a, that's, that's going to be anarchy. <laughs> uh, I don't think anyone could have predicted that atheism would become synonymous with, with neoliberalism in the way it did. And, and worse so, I think it's worse than that now. I think that today's movement atheism is not even neoliberalism. It is right wing. Uh, it is a conservative movement. Uh, I think it's one of the, I think I would probably put it more on par with those guys and say, oh, I'm socially liberal, but fiscal conservative. Uh, they're not really socially liberal, but like it's, it's one of those like two sides of the coin where they'll be like, look, I'm fine with same sex marriage and, uh, women's rights, uh, abortion rights. They're, those are cool with me, but they adopt very much on the, on the, the fiscal side tends to become a little bit more popular with them. Uh, they are more open to things like healthcare and whatnot, but they're very racist. That's a great way to put it. They're xenophobic. Uh, uh, and so the, the state of that movement right now is, is, is very far right. And it's causing a lot of damage to those of us who aren't. Uh, and especially those who are kind of rooted in the, the politics of it all. It's been damaging to us. So how did that happen? Trump made it easier but it really started before that uh i mean now now looking back you can i can see the signs better um even reading early works of harris that when i read them originally the light bulbs didn't go off uh rereading them i'm like oh like he was headed there it was written there like i could now 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 you see it Hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh, Dawkins and stuff. It took longer. Uh, I mean, the God delusion doesn't deal with Islam very heavily, um, but it started to get there because they aren't able to differentiate the belief from the believer. Uh, they want 
the world to be way more black and white than it is. Uh, they struggle to, to see a spectrum in belief. Um, but they also really struggled to find a way to keep making money. And you couple all of that together and you wind up preaching to the wrong side of the, the political spectrum because on the, on the left left, you had people saying, look, we're, we're not buying this. Islam is to blame narrative. You're missing uh, everything that goes into it. Because if you remove religion today from the world, right away, just gone, groups like ISIS would still exist because they're still being terrorized by the US. The Middle East, I mean, not ISIS like, themselves. I mean, like the Middle East is still being exploited and terrorized by us. And that's not because of religion. It's because of imperialism and it's because of oil and it's because of resources. And we go and take. And religion gave ISIS a tool for recruitment. But they would have they would just be flying this fight under another flag. So it's not as simple as blaming Islam. What I also don't get is how can you blame Islam for everything, like income inequality or lack of jobs or lack of prospect? <laughs> like how do you blame them for everything? Exactly, and, and so and so, but this—that's where the—that's where the divergence really started to come in, is because what you have is the left isn't buying that narrative, and so they're not inviting you on TV, they're not inviting you for radio interviews, because they don't want to hear it. You're missing—you're missing the whole picture, and you're selling a very narrow scope. And they're like, "This isn't this person doesn't know what they're talking about," and we're not going to platform them for that. But Fox News. Oh, they had no problem calling Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris to come on. Ayanna Hirsi Ali, oh, she was perfect to bring in because she was an ex-Muslim who loved to just blame Islam for everything. That was what they needed. The problems we face as a country were all to blame because of religious fundamentalism of Islam. And suddenly you've got like a Harris saying, look, I'm not a conservative but they're the ones that are letting me talk about these important issues. But when you only talk to one audience on these important issues, you also start to listen to that audience and it doesn't help their worldview get any better. And as the left spoke out against them, it made them resent the left. They felt, they felt rejected because we weren't buying their, their bad narratives. Like we were like, it's way more complicated than this. You're just simplifying it. And, they refused to accept that it could be more complicated than that. And then you'd have Harris be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, America is not doing great work over there, but if they didn't have Islam, they wouldn't have a reason to blow themselves up. And they, they couldn't seem to wrap their head around the fact that Islam was a tool used by extremists to recruit. It wasn't their motivation. Their motivation was to stop us. And their way of doing that was to use Islam to get people to, to fight their battle for them. Uh, and it's because very rarely are you, do you find 
religion really at the core. At the end of the day, they'll drop religion in a second if they don't need it. But they needed it. And it worked. And they were able to use it to go into communities and be like, you're this religion now. Here's what you believe. And then as you drive that in, then they start pulling it out and saying, all right, now you fight for us. Um, so that grew to having people like like Harris and, and, and Dawkins trying to find this voice. And that's what people like Dave Rubin came into play. Uh, people like uh, even Joe Rogan like plays parts in this because they start teaming up with these commentators who at the time, like Ruben was sold himself as, as, as left, you know, he was on the young Turks, but he was all about defending. Look guys, we're wrong here. The right is correct. When it comes to Islam, they're dangerous. And so he starts platforming those voices. But what happens is the, 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 the left that he knows, you know, the liberals on the young Turks push him out. They're not, they're not buying his crap and they're sick of it. And so now he plays the persecuted persecuted complex, you know, starts his own thing. But then they're just talking to each other. They create a bubble. And suddenly they start it became more than just Islam. Now the left is the point for everything. I mean, wasn't it just like one and a half, two weeks ago that Dave Rubin was on Fox News literally blaming the left for the fires in California? Because we're demanding uh, racial diversity, so they can't hire firefighters. What? <laughs> and actually, people like Dave Rubin or new atheism or just atheism in general getting in bed with Fox News because they find it like this doesn't make sense. And they're still trying to wrap their minds around it. They're like, how can a homosexual person be on Fox News? How can you have atheists on there? They should be natural enemies. This is why it's all crazy. It's all gonzo. And it's like, it's not crazy. Because the whole point underlying all of this is capitalism. But a lot of liberals don't want to reject capitalism. But that's the unifying thing that like so long as Dave Rubin is capitalist, pro-capitalism, pro-neoliberalism, he's okay, even if he's gay. Sam Harris, the atheist, that's okay. So long as he's pro-capitalism, pro-invisible hand, pro-like market efficiency, woo-woo, like that's okay. I think that's a big thing for liberals versus left. Left can accept that liberals can't and i think a lot of liberals become part of the left when they can't accept that yeah it doesn't make sense if you don't think capitalism is the problem if you do think capitalism is the problem then it makes perfect sense why these people are on there and how these like natural enemies quote unquote have become allies right because they understand it's financially destroying to move the other way it's over for them if sam harris said I'm a communist. It would be over. <laughs> I mean, I, I only can make up a small, you know, anecdotal evidence. But when I came out against new atheists, that was really the end of what would be the height of some of my uh, career stuff. Like my podcast on Patreon did make, I never made a lot, but at the height, I was making $280 an episode Two four episodes a month. That's pretty decent. Mm-hmm. When I first started going after them really heavy on the podcast, because that wasn't the original intent of this podcast when I started it, 
long gone now, thankfully. Um, but, uh, when I really was just like, no, like it was after, right after the election, I couldn't do it anymore. I was like, no, I got to start talking about the way they're defending the right now. I dropped down like to maybe 60 bucks a month because the people that came to hear me crap on religion thinking like, okay, Dan Errol's an atheist and his blog was about atheism. And then my podcast came out and it was more or less about like church state separation stuff when it started. Uh, but then once I said, well, these, these atheists that you adore are wrong. They're like, no, we're done. You're not, you're not, you know, you're not reaffirming what I already believe. I'm not here to question things. And they, they followed the money. Oh, and that doesn't mean that they don't believe this. I don't think that Dave Rubin is secretly a good person who's trying to get money. I mean, not that you could be a good person and then do that anyways, but it's not like I think he believes uh, in more leftist ideas and he's just selling a right-wing version of himself. I think he's a right-wing douchebag, but he's figured out how to ramp that up into a money-making machine. Uh, I also think they get caught up in their own their own BS. Like, maybe he didn't believe something the first time he said it, and then he said it, and it was like, oh, and then it went well. You're going to start believing it pretty quick if you if you repeat something enough. It becomes what you believe. Uh, and I think what really drove this movement into that corner was that they, from the get go, had a superiority complex and refused to listen to others which meant that they had to go to outlets that were less savory and it kept them in that mindset. And that's and the money, the money kept driving. It. So they got, they kept getting more and more brash about it because the, the worse they got to us, the more money they made and the more followers they got. And they became wrapped up in it. And like you called Dave Rubin, like one of the greatest grifter ever. Dude, if he's got one profession, it's being a grifter. That's the one thing he's good at. He's a terrible interviewer. <laughs> he doesn't make you think about what you said. He doesn't question what you said. He just goes along and lets people talk. And then he makes all this money. He's also a stand-up comedian, and I don't think he's very good at that either. Oh, God, he's terrible. <laughs> a bunch of them are. <laughs> like Steven Crowder, supposedly uh -huh. a stand-up comedian. Joe Rogan is. and Yeah, yeah they all go down that path. I David Smalley, who's a much more small-time podcaster, oh, stand-up comedian now. But what happened was, honestly, and, 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 and David Smalley, I don't talk about him very often. He's one of the worst of the worst. But he's a great example of someone who was doing a much more left podcast and was staying in that route. But his podcast was becoming less successful. Yeah, I saw the heel turn because I used to listen to it. Yep. I heard it in real time. Yeah, yeah. So I found his podcast later. So I was like listening to a bunch of them trying to catch up and I saw the turning, you know? Yeah. I mean, you can listen to one, you can listen to some leading up to Milo um, speaking at uh, UCLA and then listen to that. And you kind of start to hear a little bit about him kind of getting into the free speech stuff. And then listen to my debate with him about free speech <laughs> and then listen to anything after that. And it's like he jumped off a cliff. Uh, but honestly, I, I we were very close friends. Like our families used to have dinner together. 
um, like when he'd come through town, we'd meet up, we'd have dinner. Uh, I, every, every speaking gig we had together, we spent every moment we could together. We hung out all the time. Um, he wasted no time throwing me under the bus when it became the financial thing to do. It took one day. It took one day for him to denounce me as a person when the, the people on the right, like the Rubens and whatnot came to his defense over something he said. And that was, to me, that was watching that biggest turning point was when the people that he envied for being very uh, wealthy off doing this and very successful joined him in combating the left. And within within two days, his Twitter profile said anti it said anti Antifa, and he just he just hard turned it, and he went in, he went in full force and was just like, "Where's the money?" He'll turn. Yep, and it took no time at all. His was one of the fastest, but it was his was following that money because, like you said, you could hear it in real time if you binge it. Actually, to your earlier point about Peter Bogosian, the same thing. I don't think he was making much money as a speaker once he made that he'll turn to the right. He got invited to Joe Rogan. He became much more popular. Right. It's that, that's where it sells. That side sells. If I would have stuck with them, I'd probably be doing a lot different than I am now. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? A lot of the younger YouTuber, like left millennial, uh, Gen Z people online, they're pretty fast. There's been other YouTubers where they're setting up their left base and then they're preparing their heel turn. And people call them out right away now. They've seen the Ruben playbook and they also saw what Candace Owens. So it's like, if somebody tries it again, it's so obvious. Now the kids are too quick with it. Now they see it coming. Yeah. And, and, and you're going to watch like it won't, the, the bubble's going to pop soon. It doesn't have a long lifespan. Uh, and you're going to watch these same people heel turn to a different, something else. They're going to find the next thing and you're going to, we're going to lose like, so if there's 10 of them, we're going to lose six of them. Like they're not going to transition to what what the next big thing is, and they're going to fade out. But like like a Ruben or someone like that is going to figure out what that next grift is, and they're going to switch to it. And if that like let's say Bernie wins, and suddenly leftism is all the rage, you're gonna you're gonna see these right wingers be like, you know, I was thinking, and then boom, there you go, and. I tell you what, the liberals are gonna love it. <laughs> it's a little bit harder with the left because they can make some money off of Patreon that way, let's say. But it's gonna be really hard to run ads. Oh yeah, the left is not gonna be accepting of them, but the liberal <laughs> side of things, uh, the TED Talk people, the TED Talk people, <laughs> MSNBC, <laughs> CNN, they 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 love a right winger who switches sides. Oh man, I, mean, I think of any politician who even stays conservative but says Trump is wrong and you've got like Ted Lu tweeting at them welcome to the resistance <laughs> Francis Fukuyama yeah <laughs> he did that turn to liberal yep that's what you got to do and you make that turn and liberals love you for it oh god you can you can hold the same exact conservative beliefs against women and homosexuals but you say that the right is wrong and they will welcome you with open arms and they will say this our our view is big enough for everybody big tent liberalism you know you got nancy pelosi out there being like this vote for this democrat even though he's against women's rights like they love it so the grift the grift will change eventually and 
<laughs> It'll be funny to watch, you know, Dave Rubin suddenly be like, you know, Marx was one of the most prolific speakers we've had in our time. Well, that happened with the the TED Talk era where a lot of CEOs were like hardcore Republican or libertarian. And then they started trying to appeal to the left, like liberal left yep. on these TED Talks or these talks. You know, they they were making that grift turn. You just need to lean in, you know? Right. Yep. <laughs> Get gritty or whatever. <laughs> And going back to atheism, I find that because of post, you know, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and and the whole a new atheism movement, like an Overton window moved, shifted to the right, it seems like new atheism is atheism now. Like people can't conceive of an atheism that existed before Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. And even if they do turn their backs on Harris and Dawkins, like I think a lot of mainline atheists have started to do that. They still think that capitalism, free market, invisible hand, and the American empire being a force of good are just realities of atheism and just science. It's just physics. <laughs> These are just truths and, and this weird faith in corporations to do good. Yeah. Um, I think <laughs> I, I said something recently on Twitter about new atheists being, you know, it's almost like its own religion. And one of the first replies I got was, for me slandering them by calling them new atheists. And I was like, that's a term that they at least used to use very openly and loved it. I know. But the window is, like you said, the window has moved so much that that's just atheism now. And uh, yeah, it, they, they did, you know, I talked earlier about normalizing atheism. They normalized new atheism in the sense that it's like, when you think of atheists, you do, you think of a neoliberal capitalist <laughs> you think of ayn rand instead right. of karl marx now right and i was trying to explain that to somebody but it's like they've done such a good job of erasing uh, atheism's anarchist past or his communist past or his socialist past or it's just like weird counterculture hippie past right that's all been washed away and all they remember is like reaganomics right yeah yeah that's that's i mean i guess if there's anything to sum up the state of new atheism today it's reaganomics <laughs> <laughs> new atheism is where reaganomics came back <laughs> new atheism old politics now i think there are actually a lot of atheists though out there like me who purposely avoid anything with the word atheism in it because like you said atheism online has become so synonymous with intellectual dark web or right-wing things so for us what are good sites, blogs, or even people we shouldn't give up on because they're still doing good work? You know, I would say there's a YouTuber named Steve Shives. Uh, he is so outspoken against uh, this rise of right-wing and, and of atheism and, and the racism and bigotry that comes along with it. There is a podcast by... A, by a Twitter user who goes by the name Nice Mangoes, and I'm gonna feel really <laughs> bad that I can't remember what her podcast is called off the top of my head. Uh, it's something conversations. I could research this and then I'll put it all in the show notes. Great, that would be helpful. Uh, with an apology that I couldn't remember. Um, but she is an ex-Muslim who challenges like the like the ex-Muslim group that's very right wing. And she challenges like the, the, the Harris and the Majid Nawaz. Um, and she really puts forward that just because you're an ex-Muslim doesn't mean you have to be like this right-winger anti-Muslim. 
you can still challenge religious belief and be more left-leaning kind of thing. And then uh, also Ryan Bell. Uh, he became very popular years ago when he did, he was a Seventh-day Adventist uh, pastor who decided he was losing his faith. And he said he was going to live for one year as an atheist. So he was going to live as if God did not exist. Oh, I remember this. Yeah. And uh, after that year, he said, oh, wait, yeah, so God doesn't exist. <laughs> and he did, a, he did a blog for a long time called The Year Without God. And then he, he stopped doing that. And now he's doing uh, a podcast called Life After Faith. And it's really good. And he's the same. He's, I don't know if he's fully calling himself an anarchist yet, but uh, he may as well. Uh, but he is very, very leftist. Uh, uh, what I would call like a radical humanist kind of guy. Um, but his podcast is really good. And he's really a, a, a hold, holding people accountable for what they're doing and talking about it. And I really appreciate him too, because he's the kind of guy that like, if I, if I have like some hot take and it's wrong, he's the guy that will reach out and be like, can we discuss this? And uh, sometimes it turns out that, you know, maybe he'll be like, oh, you know what? You're, you're right. It, maybe you worded it wrong or like, I didn't understand it. Or I'll be talking to him and be like, you know what? Like, you're right. I didn't look at it at that in that perspective. And you're right. Like, I'm I'm wrong here. Uh, he's that he's that kind of person who he's calling out everything he sees, but in a in a constructive way that's building towards something. Instead of just trying to tear everybody down. And he's 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 less interested in taking part of call out culture and more into uh, and I use that word kind of loosely, um, but he, he's interested in like calling out wrongs, but seeing if they can be made into rights. I, I'm I'm hopeful because there seems to be a good amount of of left leaning atheists uh, who are who are still holding on and and fighting because they I think in the same way like I kind of wanted to give up on the term too. And uh, it was the, the, the hip-hop artist Soul. Um, he told me, you can't do that. He's like, you're, he's like, when I think of atheism, he goes, you're one of the last voices I could think of that isn't a douchebag. <laughs> and he's like, if you give up on the term, then, we've, then we're, just, we're just giving it up. We're saying you win. And so I was like, you're right. And then when I was actually even in talks to, to go over to PM Press for some books, it became, you know, look, we, we know you're kind of over the movement, but like, if, if, if you want to write these, you're, you're, you're trying to change it. You can't, you can't leave it. And, uh, I was like, you're right. Like I can't, if I drop the term, I've given up the fight. You're not going to start calling yourself a skeptic now. <laughs> God, oh, Jesus, no. What about journalism? What are some publications or journalists you like? I read a lot of Teen Vogue. Uh, which sounds very strange to say, but it's true. Unless you follow it, then you know why. And then you know that. why. Yeah, uh, yeah. Journalist-wise, uh, Kim Kelly is one of the best journalists out there right now. Uh, focuses mainly on labor, uh, but like I said, I, I think I mentioned earlier, I work in labor, so that's uh, a big drive for me. Uh, and uh, in the same realm, uh, Sarah Jaffe, uh, she writes about labor, but also she's she wrote a book called Necessary Trouble. And if you really want to understand how the right grasps so much control and how white supremacy took over in this country, that's a book to read. Uh, 
uh, she really dug deep and, and went and met people and figured out how that came to be. So Dan, how can people follow you and how can they learn more about your work? Well, uh, best place, the best place to follow me would be on Twitter. Uh, that's where I'm the most active. So that's at Dan Errol. I'm also on Mastodon, which is like a Twitter social media splinter, like alternative thing. I'm pretty active on there as well. And that's, that is at, or the best way to find that is go to mastodon.technology slash at Dan Errol. No one's going to remember that. No one's going to follow me there. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. There you go. Um, and then just at danherald.com. Uh, I put like upcoming writing, uh, upcoming speaking stuff. Now that the book's out, uh, I'll be doing more of that. Um, and then if I do write for a publication or something, I always post it on my personal site so people can find it there as well. Uh, I, I have a public Facebook page, which is like the facebook.com slash Dan blog. I am very anti Facebook. So I very rarely <laughs> update that. That's more of a contractual obligation to have the social media accounts open. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that, those are the best places to find me, but really, if you want to, if you want to engage and, and, and chat. Twitter is the best place to find me. And when do you think you'll be done with that new book, The Unholy Alliance? Uh, with it, I'll probably be done with The Unholy Alliance within the next one to two months. And then it's got a long production process ahead of it. So look for that. Look for that in late 2020 or early 2021. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm finishing that up now. That was a hard book to, to tag when to stop writing it because it, the news doesn't stop. And so it's like every day I'm like, wait, they're doing something more right wing. Like at some point you have to just stop listening and be like, okay, now I'm going to write the rest of this book without bringing in everything happening up to date because it's not a blog. <laughs> well, thank you, Dan. This was uh, really fun, informative, and I got a lot out of it. I think a lot of the listeners are going to get a, a lot out of it. And I think uh, a lot of misconceptions or maybe uh, some feelings they, they had themselves, um, maybe you clarified for them. And I think this is also very helpful for a lot of future parents or current parents. Oh, thank you. And I really appreciate it coming on. It was, uh, this was one of the more fun interviews I've had in a long time. So I appreciate it. <laughs> now that's the show. We've grown Southpaw purely from word of mouth. So that means it's all organic. So if you're already spreading the word, please continue to do so. If you've never done it, please consider telling your friends, sharing on social media, and also leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will make it easier for others to find us. And since this is independent media, every dollar you pledge on Patreon goes a long way in the production of the show. Find us on patreon.com slash southpawpods.